The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcaran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week. Matthew Paris is just back from Australia and he shares his thoughts on the upcoming referendum on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Dan Hitchens looks at church congregations and wonders why some are on the up while others are in a spiral of decline. And Leah McLaren describes the delights of audio and tells us why young children should be heard but not necessarily seen. First, it's Matthew Paris. My partner and I have just returned from the most magical trip. As guests of Western Australia's Tourist Board, we've driven almost 1,500 miles on decent but mostly unpaved roads right across the top left-hand corner of the Australian continent. This is the Northwest, a landscape like nowhere else on the planet. Three times the size of England, they call it the Kimberley. Starting from a town called Broome, easy to fly there, we made it overland to Darwin in the Northern Territory. In almost leisurely fashion, we took about ten days in an all-singing, all-dancing Toyota camper van, sometimes sleeping out under the stars, more often staying in comfortable chalets at a string of cattle station-turned-tourist-camp places dotted along our route. Everywhere was clean and comfortable, everyone was welcoming, the stakes and the swimming creeks were bliss, and I'd enthusiastically recommend this adventure, the Gibb River Road, they call it, to couples or families keen to get off the beaten track and into the bush, but without any kind of danger and always within reach of creature comforts. Many Australians do it. I'm writing at length for the Times about the experience. Suffice it to say that if Walt Disney had created a giant asteroid as a strange yet beautiful combination of hot red earth, orange rock, cliff, mountain and semi-desert plateau, yet cut almost as if by cheese wire, with ravines, gorges and mini canyons packed tight with palm-fringed greenery where clear, cool water tumbles over waterfalls into deep lagoons, they'd still struggle to match the Kimberley. Within surprise, though, there were surprises, and it's one of these I want to write about here. I had expected to find Aboriginal people living in these wild landscapes, they used to, for more than 60,000 years, and everywhere there are rock paintings testifying to the human population for whom this land of miracles was home. They were there when white people arrived. They are not there now, or rather, they've left the bush and are living around the very few settlements you could call urban, Broome, Derby, Kununura. Their art and artistry survives. We visited an engaging workshop and gallery in Kununura and were hospitably received there. But their situation as a people struck me as marginal, troubled and a little sad. Alcohol is a problem, but the root cause was 
Oh, I don't know. But words like damaged, unmotivated and beached spring to mind. One sense that both sides of the Aboriginal settler divide feel unsettled about what has happened. I used to think the country's national sorry day and stuff like that was all just hypocritical nonsense. But now I'm not so sure. One evening in Kununura, we were bystanders to an argument, conducted cordially, between a young white Australian and an older retired white lady from Melbourne. The young woman stayed polite but rejected the older woman's attitude, which was that Aboriginal people won't take advantage of opportunities offered, leave their rubbish lying around everywhere, and in groups feel threatening to people like her. The younger woman was insistent that this lady's response reflected only her misunderstanding. She'd not worked with or got to know Aboriginal people. They did not fit her stereotypes. We took no sides. The others around the table, mostly retired white Australians, kept their counsel. But I felt that the rather plucky young woman and the equally sincere elderly lady represented two sides of what's really the same national response to the plight of Aboriginal people. Distress, bafflement and perhaps shame. This emerges differently and in different white Australians. On the one side, an angry insistence that the Aboriginal people's plight is their own fault, and on the other, a good-hearted but perhaps patronising insistence that they couldn't help what has befallen them and the responsibility to repair the relationship lies with white Australia. I'm not so sure these two sides are as far apart as their respective protagonists may believe. In both cases, despair is not far beneath the surface, nor is guilt. What had provoked this argument is provoking similar arguments all across the Australian continent. Someone had mentioned the voice. This refers to a nationwide referendum to be held in three weeks' time on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' voice. Australia's Labour Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese's proposal, is to set up a federal advisory body to comprise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people representing Indigenous communities. Its role would only be consultative. How the body will be composed, and how its members chosen, and how and to whom conclusions would be presented, would be fleshed out later. The referendum really just requests a permission to proceed. The idea is not uncontested, even within Aboriginal communities, and national polling suggests opinion has swung against it. In Australia, I saw only yes posters in residents' windows, but one has the gnawing suspicion that no poster often means no. As a majority, yes is required not only nationally, but in a majority of the states, it appears unlikely to pass. It could fail quite dramatically. Whichever side you're on, that will be a sad day. It will look to many like a rejection of the Aboriginal people themselves. Watch some of the Yes Campaign's History is Calling videos on YouTube. Their message is moving, but implicit in it is that if you care about and respect the Aboriginal peoples, you vote yes. The lurking corollary that to vote no is not to care about or respect them will strike a sour note if no wins, 
and it's not what many no-voters will have meant to say. Mr Albanese looks like setting back the cause his referendum was called to advance. He will leave all sides feeling more raw than when he took it up. Though conceived with good intentions, this has been a serious error of judgment, and were I an Australian, I'd feel angrier about the calling of this referendum than about any possible result. That was Matthew Paris. Next is Dan Hitchens. The Pentecostal preacher is in full flow, his voice raised to near deafening volume, his gestures expansive but exact, the congregation murmuring back a chorus of amens. When he receives an unexpected interruption, a woman asked me at the barbecue last week, he is telling us, Pastor, if I won the lottery, a voice somewhere to his right intervenes, Amen! A wave of laughter from the congregation. The preacher rides it. No, don't amen that. We don't believe in lotteries. We believe in work. Hard work. So she asked me, Pastor, if I won the lottery and I gave the money to the church repair fund, would you accept it? And I said, the congregation is quiet again. We're in the realm of moral theology. Of course I would. Does that mean I want you to play the lottery? Of course not. It's Sunday morning at an Elam Pentecostal church in London, and the place feels alive, fittingly for perhaps the fastest growing Christian community in the UK. Over the past 25 years, Elam's membership has risen from 50,000 to 75,000, according to the statistician Peter Brearley. The figure is all the more striking when you consider the overall picture of Christianity in the UK. The census revealed that, for the first time, less than half of the country identified as Christian, a fall of seven million people over a decade. Yet while certain kinds of Christian practice are fading, it seems, others are very much not. In recent decades, thousands of new churches of all varieties have sprung up across the land. London's Sunday attendance is 10% higher than 40 years ago. Vast congregations have flourished, if you know where to look. John Hayward, a former maths lecturer, has produced a model to try to track which churches are growing and which are shrinking. He focuses on the R number, made famous by the pandemic, but long employed by statisticians for anything that spreads through person-to-person contact, rumours, internet trends, social contagions such as bulimia, urban riots. Put simply, if churches aren't making more Christians than they are losing, the R number falls below the crucial threshold of one, and decline sets in. He has published a study of UK church groups which makes for sobering reading. Hayward's own congregation, the Church in Wales, is declining at such a rate that, on the assumption that nothing changes, it will be extinct at some time in the 2030s, just after the Welsh Presbyterians. In the 2040s, it will be the turn of the Scottish Episcopalians, Methodists, and the Church of Scotland. The last rites for Anglicans and Catholics will be read in the 2060s. The more charismatic and evangelical churches, such as Elim, New Frontiers, and the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, have a healthy R-rate. Everyone else is below the line. Hayward acknowledges that immigration is a huge factor in the growth of churches, but he tells me that growth, once established, can go on for generations, and it pulls in other people. I was in a meeting the other day with representatives of Nigerian churches, 
and the majority of their congregations are not immigrants. Growing communities, he says, don't just make believers, but disciples who are able to pass on the faith to others, to infect them, you might say. Successful churches teach people how to introduce others to the faith and to show them how to be a Christian. All that you can see on a Sunday morning at Elim Pentecostal. The emphasis on spreading the faith is relentless. The faithful are reminded to talk to people about Jesus every day and encouraged to attend an evangelization seminar later in the week. There are disciple-making workshops too for men of valour and women of substance. In a small congregation of around 70, about 10 have a serious role in the service, leading prayers or whatever, and everyone does so with confident enthusiasm. Moreover, the service has the feeling of a family reunion. Everyone knows when to join in. There is raucous laughter at in-jokes, and when the service pauses for five minutes of greeting each other, the room turns into a whirl of hugging and backslapping. Half a dozen people come over to warmly introduce themselves. As a dogmatic Catholic of the old school, I'm not seeking answers to the big questions. But if I was, I might think this was a good place to look. Thriving churches, Hayward says, are very intentional about what they do. They are very clear in their beliefs, particularly about the urgency of accepting Christ, since one's eternal destiny is at stake. Rather than, well, everybody here believes something, and we're not really sure what, but we can always put on an event and maybe somebody will come along. A week after my visit to the Pentecostals, I attend a service at a United Reformed Church, which is the fastest declining of any UK-wide church. The service is led by the moderator of the URC, the Reverend Dr Tessa Henry Robinson, described by her church as a womanist practical theologian who has a particular focus on uplifting ethnically minoritised women and communities. The URC itself, according to its website, is not rigid in the expression of its beliefs and embraces a wide variety of opinions. The Gospel reading is about forgiveness, a contentious subject Dr Henry Robinson concedes in her sermon, but we can begin almost immediately by asking forgiveness for how we buy into containing and using God, such as pronouns, apparently. I am not asking people to be on the same journey, but I am trying to be intentional about not using he or she or it or they to identify God, not limiting our language in identifying a God that is limitless. The trade-off is that so limitless a God may also be too fuzzy to see clearly. At the back of the Elam church is a cross, a reminder of Jesus's saving death. At the back of the URC church is a stained glass depiction of a tree with tongues of fire in it, a general image of life and renewal. One theory is that communities which make serious demands are more likely to inspire serious commitment. In Britain, at least, that theory has recent history on its side. The Anglican vicar David Goodhue, a leading researcher of church growth, summarised the evidence. Those trimming faith to fit in with culture have tended to shrink, and those offering a full-fat faith, vividly supernatural, have tended to grow. This is as true of the ultra-liturgical Orthodox as it is of the ultra-informal Pentecostals. The plight of Anglicanism is acute. Just 3% of under-25s describe themselves as Anglican. Last week, Justin Welby said it might not be all bad that faith has declined dramatically. I rejoice in less of a bossy attitude, 
and of the church stepping back from telling everybody what to do. But of course, sin and forgiveness are at the heart of Christianity. A church which doesn't tell people what to do may, as well be implies, be learning a new humility. Or it may just be suffering a fatal loss of confidence. In which case, why are the smaller churches doing better? Stephen Bullivant, Professor of Theology and the Sociology of Religion at St Mary's University Twickenham, points out that the comparison is somewhat unfair. Catholics and Anglicans tend to see themselves as being for everyone, and therefore have to expend their resources everywhere at everything. Smaller groups can target a particular market, say, by planting a church near a university with a big immigrant population. Nevertheless, Bullivant argues, the bigger churches should learn something from this. It is worth picking out groups with strong identities and allowing them their own space, rather than assimilating everyone into a model that suits no one exactly. The Catholic Church, for instance, has given whole parishes to traditionalists or to the ordinariat, which uses an Anglican-style liturgy. These parishes then attract enthusiasts from miles around. Another fervent community, the mostly Indian-born Catholics of the Syro-Malabar Rite, have, since 2016, had their own bishop at the head of their eparchy, a kind of parallel diocese. The smart strategy, Bullivant says, is to lean into such diversity, giving confident communities a chance to build something that lasts. But the clergy may be reluctant to get on board. No bishop wants to lose a good chunk of the most practising Catholics he has to the Syro-Malabar eparchy, and no parish priest wants to give up the three big practising families who would look after the confirmation classes and provide such excellent food at parish functions. That's not a joke, by the way. That was Dan Hitchens. And finally, here's Leah McLaren. Recently, I stumbled across a file of conversations I've recorded with my seven-year-old son, Frank, back when he was four. Topics included his travels through wormholes, why he finds planet Earth boring, the tragic story of how his first family died, and how he got his laser eyes. It was only by listening to these voice notes three years later that I understood just how precious audio recordings really are, and also how underused. The conversations I taped illustrate the nuances of Frank's four-year-old self more vividly than any photo or video ever could. Anyone attempting to write fiction should take note of the power of audio. Conversation and voice are how character is built. A physical description tells you relatively little. Why don't we record more conversations, I wonder, if only for posterity's sake? Preserving everyday verbal interactions between our loved ones is something we just don't do enough of, in my view. In an era when everything else is itemized, filed, archived, the possibilities of audio seem strangely overlooked. Part of it, of course, is the unobtrusiveness of the medium. There is a covert slyness to audio. Most people instinctively object to the idea of being recorded in any way, and yet we allow ourselves to be videotaped pretty much constantly. Almost everywhere in this country, we're captured on CCTV without our knowledge or consent. We take photos and videos of our children and loved ones throughout the day, and we post them online for any number of people to see. Yet the thought of recording the things that people actually say, in situ, no matter how sweet and innocuous, seems suspicious at best and galling at worst. Perhaps it's simply a problem of association. Taping people feels like 
espionage, as if we're collecting material for later blackmail. It tends to be done in moments where someone is trying to catch another person out. In many countries, including England, for precisely this reason, it's illegal to make a public recording taken without consent. But audio recordings for personal use are allowed, and recordings of real everyday conversations are like nothing else when and if they're made with attention and love. It might seem as if video combines the best of both worlds, but the moving image has nothing on a simple audio recording. Voices and body language change on camera. The subjects become overly conscious of themselves. Listening to that old conversation with Frank, I wished so badly I'd made hundreds. In fact, I would love nothing more than to listen to an archive of all my lost conversations with loved ones. It's this that we miss most when people are gone. To be able to hear and replay the words they once said to us in their actual voices is comforting and exciting. It's like digging up buried treasure from the past. I remember why I taped those early conversations with Frank. I was doing a lot of telephone interviews for print magazines at the time, and I'd noticed how much more present I was as a listener, as an interrogator, as a person, when I knew I was being recorded. Frank loves talking in the bath. He still does. This was the place where his little mind fully opened up. He was at that magical point in childhood where he had just acquired a full grasp of the English language, but had not yet learned to distinguish between fantasy and reality. I wanted to bottle him up in a jar half the time, and the other half I was so exhausted I wanted to cry. I noticed that if I was able to give Frank my full undivided attention, he would tell me the most astonishing things. But because bath time occurs at the end of the day, I would often feel myself becoming impatient. I realized I was missing things, hurrying him into the future. Frank could sense this, of course, and it irritated him. On the worst nights, what could have been a tender, discursive chat devolved into pre-bedtime bickering, which never speeds anything up. Aware of what I was missing and that I would later come to regret it, I tried making bath time videos, but Frank's awareness of the camera changed the way he behaved. He'd either become self-consciously cute and performative or crabby. The videos just didn't work. The voice notes were a discovery. They did not alter Frank's behavior, but hitting record did force me to slow down and become a better listener. Then with the tape rolling, I became more aware of myself in a way that helped me be more present and more quiet. With the tape rolling, I became more aware of myself in a way that helped me be more present. The result was that Frank opened up and gave me a full tour of his amazing four-year-old brain, a lost landscape I will never get to visit again, but through the magic of audio was miraculously preserved. After finding the Frank bath file, I've resolved to record more everyday family conversations just for posterity resolution of sorts. Here's hoping the boys don't sue me later. Well, that was Leah McLaren drawing to a close this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If you've enjoyed these articles and they've left you wanting more, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks so much for listening. And please do join us again next week.